Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice, and a good polar vortex. <laughs> Heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Welcome to the show. Happy Wednesday, and thanks for being here. Yeah, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to another Let's Go There show with tons of news and fun that we're ready to have. Oh, that is uh, very true. And, you know, I decided against the standing desk officially, Ryan, at least for now, I was just getting too tired and hungry. You're still too that's, tired and hungry. That's the latest update. And you've been sitting, so I don't understand. I don't even think anyone knew you were standing behind a standing desk. How would they have known that? Well, now I'm letting them know in case they were wondering. Oh, my goodness. Don't you hate that when someone tells you something? You're like, I connect the dots for me. That's like the funniest thing about she is. She speaks in like blurbs. So you don't really know. It's like puzzle pieces. Like you're like, oh, I'm missing this really crucial puzzle piece to the whole story. And you might get it like two hours later. It makes you want to wait and learn more. Or move on and throw that puzzle away. (laughs) Wow, I guess you didn't learn patience. You have a lot of growing to do. I never did puzzles when I grow when I was growing up. I hated them. They're the worst. <laughs> Remind me not to get you a puzzle for your birthday or for the holidays, or maybe I will just to um, torture you. I'll have a now, return I- shipper. Like I'll return it <laughs> right back to you. Coming up on the show, Pete Buttigieg makes history once again today. We've got those details. And after the gaze over COVID backlash, how do we move away from shame to make sure people do better? We're going to be getting into that also later in the show. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Antony Blinken was sworn in as Secretary of State by VP Kamala Harris today. Here he is addressing reporters in his first briefing. I know we're not always going to see eye to eye. That's not the point of the enterprise. Um, sometimes we'll be frustrating to you. I imagine there are a few times when you'll be frustrating uh, to us, uh, but that's to be expected. That's exactly uh, in some ways the point. Uh, but you can count on me. You can count on us to treat all of you with the immense respect you deserve. 
And President Biden is set to sign several executive orders now to tackle climate change and transition to a clean energy economy. Yes, yes, Queen. That's according to the White House. The executive actions include establishing climate change as a national security priority, conserving at least 30 percent of federal land and oceans by 2030 and canceling new oil and gas leases on public lands and waters. So that is huge. Really good stuff. Now, let's move on to Bernie Sanders. You know those uh, cozy middens that everyone was talking about? And they went viral, of course, on Inauguration Day. Oh, of course. Duh. Who, yeah. who would know that? I'm just making sure. Well, he's... <laughs> His team leveraged the whole meme and popularity to sell merchandise on Sanders' website. So today, his team announced that they have raised $1.8 million in the last five days for charitable organizations in Sanders' home state of Vermont. So way to go. Way to use a meme for a good cause. I do love that. And honestly, I hope they don't sell out of those T-shirts or sweaters because I really do want one of him like sitting in that chair. They're really cute. You might want to go online right now before uh, it gets too late. Although I'm sure there's knockoffs. No, I don't want a knockoff. I want it from the actual Bernie camp. What, Shira? Are you promoting knockoffs at this no, point? Is this who we are? This is who we are. We're literally, she's like, go get at the swap meet. <laughs> what is happening? Help a small business. Okay. Um, that was what's trending this hour. But by the way, in the next hour, we're going to get into the GameStop craziness and Wall Street today, too, and the press secretary's response. But right now, let's get into the T-Report. What's going on, Ryan? Okay, so surprise, Halsey is pregnant. It is time for your T-Report, those pop culture stories trending right now. So, uh, Sheer, I know you probably, everyone has probably seen these photos by now of her and her beautiful little belly bump. I know it was very cute. I saw it on Instagram right away and I was like freaking out, messaging and texting everyone, including our show, that we got to cover this obviously today. Did you? Oh, I, maybe I, should, I emailed um, my other producer. <laughs> no, I actually knew. I texted Vanessa. I did text Vanessa. Okay, okay. I just wasn't on that. Texting chat. No, wow. she was beautiful. So they're talking behind my back at this exactly. point. You heard it here first. You heard no, it here she, first. I, she looks very beautiful and cute. And, and it's like, I can't even keep up with all her partners, to be honest. Well, I didn't even know who she was with. Well, I thought she was dating Evan Peters, but I guess this new relationship with Aleve... Aiden is his name. He's a screenwriter, a producer. He does some music stuff as well. Um, but he's also a fan of like, like I said, screenwriting and all that good stuff. But he, she just started dating him. So I guess that's interesting. I mean, a couple months into the relationship and she's already boom, pregnant. And this moment is also very special. Um, because when, if you don't remember, Halsey was 23. She appeared on the talk show, The Doctors, to talk about the process of freezing her eggs due to endometriosis uh that's something that she's been going through and then back in 2015 she also very openly um spoke about going through a miscarriage while she was on stage during a concert um yeah so obviously she's had a very big journey trying to get to this moment and who knows if this was like planned or unplanned but major congrats to the wonderful couple so amazing so sweet yeah very happy for her I am. And that's your T-Report. I got more coming up next hour. Uh, Now, next up on the show is impeaching an ex-president unconstitutional. The results that happened on the Senate floor. And will that impact the trial moving forward? That's next. Let's go there with With Shira Shira and Ryan. The new Channel Q. 
Senate rejected Senator Rand Paul's effort questioning the constitutionality of former President Trump's impeachment trial. But the vote was pretty much an indicator for how Republican senators who overwhelmingly voted for Paul's measure feel about the trial. So where does that leave us right now? Ken Charles is back with us, program director at KNX 1070 News. Thanks for being here. We love having you on. Thank you. Love being on. So with so many Republicans questioning this impeachment still, um, this shows that impeachment is dead on arrival, as Paul notes. So will a trial be a waste of time? The trial puts everybody on notice of where people stand on the charge of sedition of a pre- for a president of the United States. And so those same senators who on the night of January 6th stood on the floor of the Senate and decried the things that he said, said that there was no fraud or certainly not appreciable fraud to overturn the election, are now basically changing their entire tune. They will have to live with that and run with that. And while in some states it won't matter, in some states it absolutely will. But I have a solution. I think I could, if I were talking to Joe Biden today, and none of y'all, nobody's going to like what I'm going to say. Oh, yeah. Bring it on. This is what a tease. You guys are going to hate this. But I think Joe Biden goes to Mitch McConnell and said, here's the deal. You get me 17 senators, you convict him, and I will pardon him. What? Okay. I want, to me, the conviction is the most important thing. Convicting Donald Trump, in my opinion, for what he said and what he did starting honestly in you know September, October, but really leading up to what happened January 6th, to me is a crime against this country and a crime against the office. You have to get the conviction. That is crucial to me. No conviction means that I guess it's okay. Uh... And what does that mean for the next president and the next president and the next president when this goes completely out of control? The conviction okay. is so important. Real quick, Ken Charles from KNX, program director. Um, let me tell you why that's not going to work. Because people already think that the Democratic Party is weak sauce. They don't think that they show up in spaces and take control like they need to. They think they kind of, the way that the Republicans seem to kind of drive in and just do whatever they want, there's just no equal balance. So if Joe Biden does something like that, that is automatically giving him uh, a, a scratch on this perfectly white board, a stain on this perfectly white board that will never go away, right? And I think that will ruin him because people, so many people would say, well, what was the point of convicting if you're just going to come save him and yeah. pardon him, right? That that means there really is no accountability. But I do think what's interesting there is, and I would love to know your perspective, is unity is off the table, right? I don't I don't think we're going to see the two parties unify at any point in these next four years. I listen, I agree with you, but if he does it my way, that may be an opportunity for unity. The other part is to me, what's worse? The, the, the Trump being convicted and then pardoned or Trump being acquitted with nothing whatsoever as a blemish on his record. And it's that conviction to me that is so crucial to this. And it will show you can get 17 Republicans to do anything you want. And the sneaky side of that is some of those Republicans who vote for conviction 
might get voted out of office later down the road. I don't know. I feel like Biden would get into more trouble. It'd be a bad look longer term, knowing that this was all done behind the scenes only to pardon him versus saying, like, we didn't have control of the Republicans in the end. And this was it was obvious from uh, from the beginning. So there's only so much that we could do. And they're always going to be in the wrong, which will continue that narrative. And our- that 74 million people voted for Trump. Right. A lot of those people voted for you know Mitch McConnell. Don't forget that while, yes, the, the Democrats won Georgia um, and picked up a few house, uh, seats in the Senate, finally. It wasn't overwhelming. It's still a tie. And they lost seats in the House. The Democrats are still a minority party in a lot of ways. They've got to work with those guys. But to me, conviction is so crucial. Well, I, I see what you're saying. I see the perspective that you're coming from. I do wonder, though, this idea of it being unconstitutional, you know, We've seen uh, our country grow and evolve over time. Obviously, we're not following, like, there's moments where we don't follow the Constitution to the T. Where do we go from here? Isn't the Republican Party also trying to kind of rebuild themselves, to kind of separate themselves from this? Or are they just so attached to this Trumpism that they're willing to kind of play this political theater that we're seeing, you know, Rand Paul do? Well, listen, it's the scary part about what happened on January 6th. Those guys think they're patriots. They think they're upholding the Constitution, that this election was stolen, and they're protecting the Constitution. And scarily, I think there are a number of Republicans who have convinced themselves in a dark place that they're doing the right thing by the Constitution. Mm -hmm. There's nothing in the Constitution that says you have to impeach a president or anybody else while they're sitting in office. And while it may go to court after whatever, he's already been impeached. That's done. Now it's got to go to court. Uh, again, Ken Charles is the program director at KNX News. Check them out, KNX1070.com. Thanks as always. Now coming up on the show, what exactly is an executive order and why don't presidents use them all the time? Because we would if we were president. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. The new Channel Q. Just hours after being sworn into office, President Joe Biden signed nine executive orders, and that surpasses every other president's first day on the job in modern history. And every day, of course, we've been hearing about more executive orders he's signing. So what exactly are they, and why don't presidents use them just all the time? Well, joining us right now is Andrew Rudalevich, who's the chair of the Department of Government and Legal Studies at Bowdoin College in Maine. Thanks for being here today with us. A pleasure. Thanks for having me. So first off, I feel like uh, this is a pretty basic question, but let's just set the context here. Break it down. Yeah. What is an executive order exactly? So we're not confused. Right. Well, an executive order is one of a number of basically administrative directives that a president can use in order to tell the executive branch what to do. And so uh, the bad news for presidents is that an executive order has to flow from power that the president already has either in the Constitution or in laws that Congress has passed at some point. Uh, the good news is Congress has passed a lot of laws. And so there's a lot of authority. And of course, there's you know something like uh, 3 million people in the executive branch giving the president the authority to shape policy in the way he wants without having to go back to Congress to ask for new power in a new law. Which is interesting because obviously, like all politics, it's based off a of strategy. And we saw Trump often use it as a tool to threaten to get his way. Um, but when you're thinking about the power of like Joe Biden and all of the things that he has to do in this four years to kind of reshape the country, 
should he be using executive orders in a way that isn't further dividing the parties? Yeah, it's a great question. And you have to use them, I think, as president in conjunction with a legislative program. And we've already mm. seen, you know, President Biden talk about, uh, you know, a big COVID relief package. He's talked about immigration reform. He's talked about uh uh, infrastructure. And, you know, these things are, you know, going to be discussed by Congress probably for quite some time, but executive orders do provide a way to move fast, right? Especially uh, when what you're mostly doing is reversing things that your predecessor did, right? A lot of what President Biden's done is to revoke orders that were issued by President Trump, and of course, uh, early in President Trump's administration, a lot of what he was doing was revoking stuff that President Obama had ordered. So you have this kind of ping pong. And so generally, you know, one of the problems with executive orders is that they are fragile, right? The next person who comes in can reverse them. So it is usually better to try to get legislation through or to go through uh, regulation, which is sort of a longer term changing of the way that you interpret the law. And you'll see that happening too. I mean, all of these things go on at once. Um, but the nice thing for an incoming president is this is something you can do to show that you are acting and, you know, making your constituency happy, you know, before Congress gets its act together. And of course, these days that can take a long time or never happen at all. Again, we're talking to Andrew Rudolevich, who's uh, from Bowdoin College in Maine, government and legal studies. So with that said, I mean, yeah, obviously we know the point of an executive order, but if it keeps just going back and forth like this, I feel like it's going to drive us all crazy, including with very important issues. At what point do they, uh, is someone going to make these more official, I guess, so they won't be changed with the next president? Yeah, well, that will depend on a president being able to get Congress to really shape the, the broader uh, legislation that these orders draw on, right? So immigration reform, we had President Trump, you know, use the immigration law in a very aggressive way. Obviously, he was trying to cut down on immigration. President Obama had used the same law, but almost uh, diametrically different to try to expand uh, immigration. So you have, you know, until Congress sort of comes together and says clearly what it thinks the law ought to be, you know, presidents are going to take advantage of that vagueness of that broad scope of delegated authority that in this case they got back in the 1950s right environmental law hasn't been updated since 1990 mm -hmm. right there's all this stuff out there that congress has punted down the road and you know unfortunately i think the answer to your question ultimately is that there needs to be less polarization in the country there needs to be a legislature that works together to actually come up with what it thinks the best public policy for the whole country is we just haven't seen that and so until we get there, I think we're uh, going to be seeing these sort of back and forth executive orders, you know, uh, unfortunately for the foreseeable future. But historically, it seems like polarization has always kind of been here and presidents have always done this in some ways. Have we seen it decrease from past presidents like doing executive orders? To a degree. I mean, actually, if you go back and look at the executive order tables, Franklin Roosevelt issued more than 500 of them in 1933, you know, what? when he came into office. So these days, sort of a, a big number is more like 60 or 70 in a given year. Uh, President Trump issued, I think, 69 in 2020, which was the, the highest number in some decades. Um, so, but what you have to remember too is that executive orders are only one of the tools the president has. So we're seeing President Biden issue proclamations and he's issuing presidential memoranda and he's beginning to get, again, this regulatory agenda on track. So all of this, again, is 
what we might think of as the administrative side of the presidency, not dealing with Congress. And so, you know, that side of things has been pretty steady for a long time, ever since the federal government got big, which not coincidentally is right around the time when Franklin Roosevelt took office. So, you know, the bigger the government, the more opportunity a president has Mm -hmm. to do this. Uh, The less functional Congress is, the more motive a president has to do this. And so right now we have kind of this perfect combination of opportunity and motive. Well, that was uh, Andrew Rudolevich, chair of the Department of Government and Legal Studies at Bowdoin College in Maine. Thanks again for being here with us. Great to be with you guys. Much appreciated. Yeah, now coming up on the show, more on the Republican who thinks that Trump was too pro-gay and that's why Biden won. Okay, we'll be discussing that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. An anti-LGBTQ activist is claiming that Donald Trump lost his 2020 election to Joe Biden for a very specific reason. And disclaimer, this is crazy. But uh, yet we decide to cover it so we can make fun of this guy. Uh, He claims that Trump was too pro-gay and God intervened to make him lose the election. And here he is on Swamp Rangers radio show talking about this. And I think that that's what Trump essentially did, except on the homosexual issue which I think is his biggest mistake. And I frankly, I think is the reason why he lost the election. Uh, I think that, you know, you, that, that uh, uh, he def- defied God on a fundamental tenet of the Bible. Now, I, I didn't necessarily even want to get into the fact that there's a show called Swamp Rangers. Let's focus on the issue at hand. Swamp Rangers. Um, how ridiculous this I, all is. I already hate this segment before I it even started. Um, yes, yeah, Swamp Rangers. Yes, let's not focus on that, but let's start with that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, exactly. You said it with your laugh. Uh, this guy, Scott Lively, is the founder of the California branch of the SPLC. Uh, designated hate group American Family Association, and is actually known for his anti-LGBTQ advocacy in the U.S., Uganda, Latvia, and Russia. This guy gets around, unfortunately. In 1995, uh, this gets just so problematic and horrible, he co-authored The Pink Swastika, a book that claims homosexuals are the true inventors of Nazism and the guiding force behind many Nazi atrocities. I mean, this guy is absolutely crazy, Uh, And uh, hopefully there's some policy at a certain point that Joe Biden's administration puts into effect that can make people like this and their actions illegal. Well, here's the thing, though. You know, we still live in America. Freedom of speech is still a thing. And oftentimes, unfortunately, freedom of speech allows people to hide behind that right they can say whatever and um and do whatever unfortunately and it's just it's so gross and distracting and i hate that you know i think we even have to take responsibility i think we talked a little bit about this before we press record about Mm -hmm. you know should we even be covering this person but i do think sometimes we just need to be able to like laugh about how ridiculous this is because even in this breakdown this full video breakdown he talks about how you know it's specifically the bible talks and condemns male homosexuality but not all homosexuality, just male homosexuality, which is another form of the patriarchy and misogyny because obviously you like the women, you're all for the women because that's what turns you on, you gross person. And so it's just, 
I don't know, all of these talking points, nothing is valid. And who should I thank? He said I should thank God because um, that we don't have Trump because it was, a, 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 I guess, a revenge act or God wanted to make sure he learned a lesson. Well, thank God for that because I did not need four more years of Trump, to be quite honest. I know. This guy doesn't even make sense, right? And, and the, the crazy funny thing is, is that Trump, we all know the administration did horrible things for the LGBTQ community, but he's not even pointing to that. Um, he thinks he was too gay because specifically he points towards this uh, Richard Grenell guy, you know, the U.S. ambassador to Ger Germany. That was like the one gay guy in Trump's camp that proved that he was pro-LGBTQ. So because Grenell is out as gay and helped uh, with the GOP's 2020 LGBTQ outreach, that's why Trump lost the presidency. So, yeah, uh, more conspiracy theories that don't make sense. And so you are canceled. Now coming up on the show, Mike Pence is homeless. This story is also wild. Mike Pence is homeless and couch surfing with Republicans. That's the headline of this story. More details on that next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, has the public turned on teachers and will this impact schools reopening? This was a really hard story to read, but we're going to be getting into why it's a headline coming up on the show. Oh, yeah, it's 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 really sad, but hopefully it won't be like that forever. Yeah, I mean, uh, there needs to be a silver lining. Plus, is there a right way to call folks out for unethical behavior instead of shaming them? Those answers this hour. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Shares of GameStop surged again today. This is just wild what's happening. GameStop's nearly vertical surge over the past week has come as retail traders, many of whom do documented their moves on the social media site Reddit, bought a ton of stock and call options. The boost also might be because Tesla CEO Elon Musk tweeted yesterday a link to the Reddit board where much of this discussion has taken place. And Jen Psaki actually did respond to all of this today at her White House press briefing. Our team is, of course, our economic team, including Secretary Yellen and others, are monitoring uh, the situation. It's a good reminder, though, that the stock market isn't the only measure of the health of our, of our economy. It doesn't reflect how working and middle class families are doing. Uh, as you all know from covering this, we're in the midst of a K-shaped recovery. America's workers are struggling to make ends meet, which is why the president has introduced this urgent package to get immediate relief to families. So, yeah, we got some people making some money <laughs> very quickly. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be getting more into what this is all about and break it down tomorrow because there's other companies whose stocks just suddenly soar, including AMC. Yeah, I just don't understand anything about this. Um, I, don't, I don't understand why people are buying so much of it. It's, it's a weird and interesting thing. I've never really gotten the stock market situation, but I want to learn about it. Yeah, well, we're going to have someone on the show tomorrow uh, to help us navigate this, that's for sure. Now, according to sources who spoke with Business Insider, Mike and Karen Pence don't actually own a home and didn't have living arrangements ready when they left the U.S. Naval Observatory in D.C., which is the traditional residence of the vice president. Since they're from Indiana and no people there, they're reportedly couch surfing in the state for a while. <laughs> I think that headline is so shady because I can it imagine is. that they're staying in a guest room and not on someone's couch. But I just love yeah. the thoughts of them having no other place to go and them literally living in the backyard. 
Well, yeah, LGBTQ Nation did do a very clickbaity headline saying Mike Pence is homeless and couch surfing with Republicans after leaving D.C. I'm not complaining about the uh, the that, by the way. I think that's great, and they deserve that. Well, uh, one source said that the Pences have spent some time in a cabin that the governor of Indiana, Pence's old job, uses as a retreat. That sounds good. Current Indiana governor, uh, Eric Holcomb, Pence's former lieutenant governor, would have to give the couple permission to stay at the place. So obviously he did that. Two other sources said that Mike and Karen Pence spent some time with Pence's brother in Columbus, Indiana. His brother, Greg Pence, a Republican congressman, holds Pence's former house seat. Why would they not have bought a house before they left? That that makes know, no yeah. sense to me. At least have your arrangements together. He was a bit busy, I guess. Doing <laughs> what? Um, picking up Trump's trash. The sources said that the Pences aren't making their current location publicly known because they've been receiving death threats in the weeks following the riots. Whatever. And- Finally, CVS has begun offering in-store COVID-19 vaccinations in New York and other states as the drugstore chain ramps up plans to administer millions of shots a month. New Yorkers aged, 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 65 and older can make appointments for the shot at locations in the Long Island town of Center Morichis and the Erie County village of Blastdale, just in case you're around there, if you have family there. Other stores in Indiana, Connecticut, Ohio, and Massachusetts have also already begun giving shots. Uh, They said per an agreement with the Department of Health and Human Services, COVID-19 vaccines will eventually be available at all CVS pharmacy locations throughout the country, subject to product availability and prioritization of populations, which will be determined by states. So there you go. They're up on the vaccine business. And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? So Pamela Anderson quit uh-huh. social media because tech companies want control over your brain. I mean, what is actually happening here? Let's dive in. It's time for your T-Report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. So instead of just getting off of social media, Pamela Anderson wrote this long-winded speech saying that she is free and describes users of various platforms like Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as the bewildered herd. What does that even mean? Um, (laughs) I'm not going to disagree with her, actually. Okay, well, let me finish and then we can talk about it because I do want to know your thoughts. She didn't, however, take down any of her pages. She called out Big Tech by saying that's what they want uh, and can use to make money. They want to control your brain. Uh, She (laughs) urged her followers to try try not to be seduced by wasted time. But my question is, does she waste our time by even telling us this? What do you think? You have thoughts. Listen, this is something I would tell you if I was drunk or high, Ryan, right? I'd be like, F these social media platforms. I'm sick of giving my life to these things. They're taking advantage of my brain and my soul. Yeah, I feel that. So, I mean, I I agree with her in some ways. I even think to myself, like, why do I care so much? Like, a a part of me wishes I didn't. And, uh, you know, I could see if you reach a certain level. I mean, in a way, she doesn't really need to be on social media. You know, and like, and she didn't have to, she didn't have to tell us that she was leaving. So who writes a message on social media to tell them that they're leaving social media? Uh, Actually, wait a second. A lot of people do this recently. I've been seeing a lot of people. It's stupid. 
finish. I, a lot of people say either they're taking breaks to write a book or something like that, because when you're not present, people might start wondering where you are. Did something happen to you? So you might as well just like put it out there and explain what's going on. But guess what? The difference is she didn't tell anyone. She just said she was taking a break. That's it. She's just leaving social media. Yeah, that's enough. So anyway, let us know what your thoughts are. Uh, let us know at LGT show on social. And of course, I got more tea report coming up next hour. Now, why families are starting to turn on teachers. We're getting into that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Has the public turned on teachers? That's the headline of Madeline Will's latest article in Education Week, as there's a perception that teachers are blocking the path back into the classroom. And she joins us right now. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So this was really sad to hear as someone who's on the outside. I mean, I don't have kids, but I feel like they've been on the front lines. Uh, why is there a feeling like they're the ones to blame? Because I feel like they've also been saviors here. Right. A lot of teachers have said they feel kind of a whiplash, like they were praised at the beginning of the pandemic, and now they feel a little bit more criticism. Um, some parents are concerned that teachers unions are, are reluctant to go back into classrooms right now. Uh, they feel like it's still not safe to go back. Um, and they're worried about their, their health and their family's health and that of their students as well. Speaking of teacher unions, I, I mean, obviously teacher unions are going to have the best, they want the best for the teacher. But uh, according to a national survey that you mentioned in your article, it found that 30% of parents said teacher unions have a negative effect on school. Is that something new that we're seeing because of the pandemic or has that always been a lingering thought? That's been consistent for the last couple of years. Um, there's a, a contingent of parents who, who are concerned about the teachers' union's influence, um, but that number ha really hasn't gone up since the pandemic. But we are seeing some vocal criticism from parents now. I guess, where do the teachers and the unions stand? I mean, they're fighting back on this. Um, are we at this point in, in a bad place where it seems like there's two sides and no one's willing to budge? Yeah, in some places, I think so. I think it's... Uh, Teachers are saying, we just don't feel comfortable. We, we're scared. Parents are saying, my kid is, you know, needs to go back to in-person school. Um, they're worried that uh, the remote learning is causing students to feel isolated, lonely, depressed, um, falling behind academically. Um, and teachers know that, too. They, they realize that. They're just, they're just worried about the, the safety and health risks. So, no good answers. Yeah, it doesn't really seem like it. You know, the CDC is now even saying that there's a safer way of doing schooling at this point. So do teachers and teachers unions even really have a leg to stand on? Well, the CDC has said that evidence shows that it can be safe to go back to in-person instruction as long as there are safety protocols in place, like mask wearing and sanitation, social distancing. Um, so some in some places, teachers unions are saying, well, we can't guarantee that our schools are going to put those measures in place. And we're also concerned about the community spread um, out, outside of as cases rise in certain areas. Um, and the CDC actually did recommend that, um, you know, local officials might want to consider closing bars or restricting indoor dining to uh, help lower community transmission. Oh, so it's like one or the oh. other. In some places, it could be. Wow. Interesting. Again, you're hearing from Madeline Will, who's a reporter for Education Week, covering the teaching profession. Very specific. Um, but I guess uh, in the end, how will this whole experience change the ed education system or will it? I mean, at this point, should we be just looking at rebuilding versus going back to what was? Yeah, I think that's a good question that a lot of educators are, are wondering. Um, you know, they don't they might not want to rush back in. They want to rebuild this. We are seeing 
um, achievement gaps widen as uh, students stay home for what's now close to a full calendar year. Um, and so there's inequities that have been exposed and, and teachers are concerned about that. And hopefully we can um, rebuild something better. Yeah, and according to Education Week's vaccine tracker, at least 23 states have made some or all teachers eligible to receive the coronavirus vaccine. So is this going to be enough for schools to open at this point? Yeah, that's an interesting question that I think is a hope that as teachers get vaccinated, that they will want to go back to school and feel more comfortable doing so. But uh, some teachers unions have said that they would prefer to remain closed, even if teachers are vaccinated until case rises. Um, until, until case numbers decrease. Have you seen in covering this space uh, anywhere where it's working? Are there any case studies of people doing this well or properly? In-person instruction? Yeah, I, I think there are places, especially in more rural areas where um, in-person instruction has been going on since um, September and um, there haven't been a lot of outbreaks. Um, so it can be done safely. Um, I think in certain places, there's just a concern about whether the proper uh, protocols will be in place, the proper safety precautions. So how do you think all of this negative attention is going to kind of, and do you think it'll unfortunately have kind of a backlash on teachers so much that we won't see the same amount of support that we were seeing when it came to salaries and increasing and just being more present for teachers in ways that they need to feel supported? Yeah, I think that's the big question now. Um, I think a lot of teachers are concerned that that could be the case, um, but we haven't seen that yet reflected in national polling data, but um I think we'll be keeping an eye on that to see how that turns out. That sucks because teachers are the best. Yeah, sad. That was Madeline Will, a reporter for Education Week. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Now coming up on the show, when it comes to the pandemic and the things that make us all tick, why shame doesn't work and what could to create real behavioral change. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. The virality of gays over COVID is a case study on whether shaming actually helps move the needle and force people to do good. But according to Alex Abud Santos on Vox.com, if you do ask public health experts, as satisfying as calling out others can feel, they've learned it can actually do harm when it comes to an urgent public health crisis. And joining us to talk more about this is David Abrams, a professor of social and behavioral sciences at NYU. Thanks for being here. Sure, we are welcome. So why is it not useful to shame people regarding, you know, going out in this pandemic or wearing a mask or even now we have the vaccine chasers? Have we seen the shame work? Generally, shame doesn't work, although a tool for setting limits and there being consequences for behavior you want to discourage is a different issue. You know, I think you can you can set limits without shaming people. So on the on the side of trying to promote healthy behavior but inhibit not very healthy behavior, I think shame in general is a very bad idea. And it goes back to childhood where strongly shaming people, I think, gets them to cringe in a corner or want to bury their head in the sand. They tend then to feel the stigma of there's something deeply wrong with me. I did something wrong. And it's very hard to admit admit guilt or own up to your behavior if you've Mm. been shamed. So I think the shame and the stigma of shame, especially for people who've already been vulnerable because they are shamed as children, maybe inadvertently by parents who didn't know any better, 
or they're in groups that have experienced a lot of shame as being, you know, us versus them. Um, it can be particularly destructive. So, for example, in the early days of HIV, shaming actually got people to not want to admit that they were having risky sex and they didn't want to get tested for HIV and therefore things spread uh, in part because you weren't motivating the behaviors you wanted. You were driving people to keep it a secret uh, and they didn't want to admit it or do the right thing. Yeah, here's the thing. I think this is a very nuanced conversation, right? And you're talking about shaming when it comes in terms of like what we're living in the now in the in the middle of a pandemic when there's people who are completely not following the rules are even caring are even traveling to places where they're mostly low-income communities and it's impacting disproportionately black and brown folks it seems like shame needs to happen or a consequence or an accountability needs to happen for someone to understand the severity of their actions so i guess what what's the balance there, right? When we're having yeah. these discussions around shame. Yeah, that, that's a very good point. And I think experts in health communication and people who work with communities have learned how to find that balance. And I would say the balance is you overwhelmingly want to find ways to reward compliments and uh, in, in other ways, encourage what I call nudging towards good behavior. So look for catching someone doing something good or look for even a small movement in the right direction. Example might be, you know, I'm pleased you're keeping a distance from me. I really wish you would also wear a mask. That would increase the, the protection. And using I statements like, I'm not comfortable standing so near you without a mask. I'm sorry, I'm going to move away, is an immediate consequence but it doesn't shame the other person. You're not saying you are doing something really bad. You're using an I statement. I don't like what you're doing. So there are certainly ways to express very strong limits on what you don't want. But you mm -hmm. also, I think the balance is always to try to find positive ways to reinforce and catch what you do want. This is NYU professor David Abrams. So what you're saying means, I, I think, um, makes sense when you know someone, right? You When you have an interpersonal relationship with them. I think it's harder when it's just a stranger, as we've seen these confrontations at restaurants or stores, and also a, a public figure, right? You're not going to, is it going to make a difference if you go, thank you for this thing you did, Mike Pence, but really you should be a better leader and put your mask on. Like, how do you deal with it in, in those instances? Yeah, it, it, it's more challenging, but also more risky, because if you don't know somebody, you don't know how they're going to react. And so, you know, we tend to recommend don't get into an emotional confrontational argument with anybody, because it can escalate. And what we do know about both shame and, for example, mask wearing, is that when people are very emotionally aroused, they get into what we call fight or flight mode very quickly. And that can escalate. So I think it is important to try to say, I'm not comfortable with what you're doing. It's important also, I think, have immediate consequences that are rules that can be enforced, like mm -hmm. supporting shop owners who have a sign on the door that says, you yeah. know, um, no mask, no service. And, you know, the example I give is when we're at the beach 
we also have a problem where people have a sign that says no shirt, no shoes, no service, and we accept that. So yeah. what's the difference? All right, we're going to take a break right there, but David Abrams from NYU will be back with us. And if we're not shaming, what can be done to create change? More on that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. We are back with David Abrams, a professor of social and behavioral sciences at NYU, talking about shaming and what to do if shaming doesn't work. So I guess... Let's go there, uh, David. Earlier, you mentioned a comparison. I think we all have heard this comparison to like from COVID-19 to HIV AIDS. And sometimes I wonder, is it should we be comparing them because they're two different diseases and the comparison between the two isn't linear. And so I often wonder, should we really be comparing the two diseases like they're similar when they're really not? And of course, the response feels like for COVID that it's just as simple as in following the rules versus the lack of resources that one may have, depending on community that they're into, understanding sexual health and all these other things, when everyone basically on a national level has the same sort of resources about how to handle COVID and what we're hearing and just believing. It just feels like if you make a decision to not wear a mask or to go party or to go travel, you're making a, a selfish decision. So I just wanted to know your perspective on that. Should we really be comparing the two? Yeah, no, I agree 100%. And perhaps the comparison is not a good one. Yeah. Um, I think the issue is we are in a very big major health crisis right now, and we should deal with it in terms of the science and what um, we can do immediately to help save people's lives. And I think making connections with other um, issues may be helpful sometimes, but, but the real message here is shame leads you to avoid and perhaps even do the very things you don't want people to do, either out of defiance or rebellious or out of secretiveness because they don't want to admit they did something wrong. Yeah. So they may not go for the COVID-19 test when they know they were both exposing others and were exposed because of the shame of not wanting to admit they were in a place partying with no masks. So right. instead of doing the right thing, they do the wrong thing. I mean, you talked about all these options, which seem very nice. I mean, I'm into being nice, right? I'm, I'm definitely into compassionate listening and all that stuff. But when you're talking about uh, where we're at in people's lives, right, uh, whether it be with the public health crisis we're dealing with or even racial injustice, like where do we go from here? Uh, what do we do to stop things from happening that are wrong? Well, you know, I think... Um, our new administration is very encouraging. One of the strongest ways to help people do better is to have a very consistent science-based message from the top all the way down to local community leaders and everything in between. So I think that message is now very clear. You know, masks work, please wear them. Physical distancing is critical. We've got variations on this virus and we want to save ourselves and others, um, this has to be done. And I would perhaps even go far as to have consequences, like maybe there ought to be enforceable fines if you're in public or, or if you try to get into a store and you don't comply with the signage, um, there might be ways to very seriously have immediate consequences, just like we do with you're not wearing a seatbelt, you can be pulled over. Mm -hmm. um, or you drive drunk, um, 
there are massive consequences. So I think the same thing can apply here if we have consistent messages by people we respect and who respect the science. All right. Well, thank you so much again for joining us today for this conversation. That was David Abrams, a professor of social and behavioral sciences at NYU. Thank you. Now coming up on the show, Pete Buttigieg is making history, having passed the committee for his cabinet post. More details on that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, how Trump could theoretically get his Facebook back. Yikes. And we break down what an executive order is and Biden making history with how many he's signing. For real. That's coming up this hour on the show. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Uh, John Kerry, the special presidential envoy for climate, pushed back today on concerns about the cost of taking action to prevent climate change. It costs a lot more. There are countless economic analyses now that show that it is now cheaper to deal with the crisis of climate than it is to ignore it. We spent $265 billion two years ago on three three storms, Irma, Harvey, and Maria. Really loved that response. Uh, And you know who also pushed back on discussing anything Marjorie Taylor Greene? Press Secretary Jen Psaki. It costs a lot more. There are countless economic analyses now that show that it is now cheaper to deal with the crisis of climate than it is to ignore it. We spent $265 billion two years ago on three three storms, Irma, Harvey, and Maria. Now, the reporter is referencing Green's conspiracy-filled and violent social media activity, including a clip that has come out of her basically harassing David Hogg, who survived the Stoneman Douglas high school shooting in 2018. Uh, Did you have any thoughts on this, Ryan? Because I know um, you definitely wanted us to cover this today. This clip of Saki just like, uh, yeah, you know, like replying to reporters with this. I mean, I'm obsessed with it. I think there's something to be said about seeing uh, someone in her position literally shut it down and say, that's it. We're done with Mm -hmm. this and move on. Right. Um, I think she's setting such a great tone um, moving forward and doing her job so spot on, in my opinion, so far that uh, I really appreciated that. She's not about the drama. And I think it's been interesting to watch also journalists, um, especially like far right journalists in Uh these positions, like trying to like pull things or trick her up or just asking stupid questions. And she literally replies back like, okay, is that what you want to ask? Is that what you're taking your time out to ask me? And so I I appreciate I think she is not going to um, be spreading or being or participating in spreading any lies. And I, I love that. And it doesn't seem like she's going to be uh, leaving as quickly as Trump's press secretaries did. I mean, how many did he go through? Oh, no, I, no, yeah. it's not going to happen. That was wild. Now, Pete Buttigieg made history when his nomination by President Biden for U.S. Secretary of Transportation was approved by a Senate committee. Buttigieg was the first out LGBTQ plus person to be sworn in for a confirmation hearing to a U.S. cabinet post last week, a hearing where a member of the committee basically applauded him for his performance. He also now becomes the first out LGBTQ plus nominee to pass that committee. A lot of layers here. (laughs) 
that happen. There's a lot of uh, parts of the process. A former candidate for the Democratic presidential nomination, he also made history as the first out candidate to win the Iowa caucus. And uh, he had a standout showing in committee, landing bipartisan support. So Buddha Judge doing some good stuff. And I know he's going to be back to run for president. That's for sure. This is just the beginning, even though he was very green this first time around. Yeah. I mean, all right. I'm happy. Someone's excited for him to run for president. Uh, That was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so will Ariana Grande be joining The Weeknd during his Super Bowl halftime show? Uh, Also, let's talk about how I didn't even realize the Super Bowl was still happening. It's time for your tea report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. So fans are hoping that Ariana will join The Weeknd for his performance next week, by the way. Um, um, rumblings of a possible collaboration began on social media at the weekend uh, announced that he was dropping the highlights album uh, be- ahead of the big game weekend. And I guess that includes his song, love me harder with her. And, and I think it's like a compilation album of all of his like most popular songs. So hmm. one, how do you think this year's halftime show is going to go to be quite honest? Like it feels like so weird. I think it's going to be like it is just without a lot of people around. Right. You think I it's mean, gonna be live? Like I, I think yeah, it's it gonna is. be. I think my no, thing is I think uh, it's gonna be pre-recorded. I guess we will never know. Really. Yeah, right. Just last year, it was J Lo and Shakira. I don't know. I feel yeah. I feel like they they might do this live. I mean, we've seen a lot of live concerts still happening. No, we've seen pre-recorded performances happening on these award shows. And yeah, mm-hmm. then we've seen like performances happening on green screens, like like the VMAs did stuff like that. And like I think they were like some of the people that kind of really started to show like, oh, this is how a virtual event could really go. And so Soon I mean, you'll just be, you'll have to, or be able to boom your, uh, boom, beam yourself into like a place. You won't even have to be there in person. You'll be like, I want to be safe. I'm not even going to do a pre-record. I'm not going to be there live. I'm going to beam myself through technology. This isn't not, this isn't Star Trek, Shira. I don't know what that <laughs> point was, but anyway, I just want to know, are you going to be watching? And let us know at LGT Show Everywhere. And of course, you can find any of the stories that I have talked about today at WeAreChannelQ.com. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. We're wrapping up the show as we always do with our Yes Queen of the Day. Yes Queen. So a LinkedIn post, we don't usually talk about, talk about LinkedIn posts that go viral right, Uh, by this woman, Sherry Carpinetto from Marblehead, Massachusetts. Well, it got shared everywhere. She's a mom of two, and she's also a director at this company called Apos Health. So she wrote this post and told this to Good Morning America uh, because she was seeing so many working moms struggle with balancing it all and the guilt that surrounds each decision. So I'm gonna just read a bit of this, but it's very powerful. Take it in, okay. She writes, it's okay if you don't love your job, but it supports your family. If you stay in a job because it's flexible, you accept a job where the pay isn't ideal, but you need to get back to work. Sometimes home life affects work life. We can't separate ourselves. You leave a job after a short time. The fit isn't right. You get a dream job or a great offer. You choose to stay at a job for 20 years. Uh, So she continues to go on to all these things like it's okay. You work late some nights, missing family events. You leave work early to catch your kid's game. It was just very exciting. 
accessible and beautifully said. And finally, she ends it saying, these are our choices. This is your life. There's so much pressure from society to do what's right, to move up, to hustle. Women, especially working moms, are often riddled with guilt about what the right choice is. Go forward with confidence in your choices. And she ends it with live life fully without guilt, learn, grow, adapt, be a good human. I mean... It's even longer than that, but I just—I like, thought it. you were going to read the entire thing, no. and I was like, "Oh my god, I was this is a spoken not word spoken moment. word." <laughs> taking the words right out of my mouth, um, but yeah, this is beautiful, and I—I I mean, I would have never gone to a LinkedIn to find this type of inspiration. It seems like it would be more of a kind of a um, like an Instagrammy thing, but. Yeah. Our Twitter thing, even because that could be a thread. Um, but I, I love when people share things like this and just share uh, their own personal vulnerabilities, right? I think that's what connects us. Exactly. So a Yaz Queen to Sherry Carpinetto. Go check out her post on LinkedIn right now. I'm sure uh, that helped her at her job too because she's had a new job, and I'm sure they liked that that, that she was getting recognition for a good reason. Uh, and that does it for our show today. If you miss any of our show or interviews, be sure to check out our podcast. Just go to the radio.com app and search Let's Go There. And on tomorrow's show, we've got White House veterans, the voices behind Pod is a Woman, joining us. Plus, you've been seeing Game, uh, GameStop everywhere in the headlines and on social media today. Well, we're going to be getting into how a bunch of Redditors made GameStop stock soar. This is crazy what's happening right now. We're going to get into why this all happened and break it down on tomorrow's show, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern, live right here on Channel Q. But in the meantime, we're sending you love and light. And honey, remember to slay. See you tomorrow. Have a great night. And now stay tuned for Love Line with Dr. Chris right after this. Bye, y'all.